How are you under pressure? Someone just said, cool. Another person just said, oh. How are you under pressure? You know, one of the hardest things about being in those moments of pressure and stress and difficulty, being in the fire, is I've found that you really, it really shows who you are. What comes out of you when you're squeezed is who you really are. Sorry if that gives you a gross image. But what comes out of you when you're squeezed and when you're pressed, that's who you really actually are. And I want to ask the question, what are you like when you're under pressure? You know, sometimes I think I'm doing good with it. Sometimes I feel like, you know what, I got this thing down. I am just like Jesus. No problems. I'm just handling everything, handling my life, handling my family, handling the church like a boss. And then every so often, just, I'll just get kicked off balance and be reminded that I've, uh, you know, the Lord's still working on me. Like last week, I'm traveling back from the UK. We get to the airport and the lady there who was not having life. She just wasn't like, like enjoying anything. Informed us that the Air Canada check-in systems are down internationally. And if you want to check your baggage, you have to fill out this form and pass it in. And so we fill out the form. She literally like puts a little sticker on our bag and says, yeah, that's going to be good enough. We knew she could care less about our luggage. But nonetheless, we're, we let it go. And on the flight, we, got, we were two hours late leaving, so we were already pressed to make our connection in Toronto. We've been gone a week, missed our kids, jet lagging. You know how it is when you're on the back end of travel. And we're about to miss our, we're going to miss our connection before we even land. And we're, if we, we're lucky if we make it. And we come into Toronto and they say on the, on the PA, they, they go, um, if you were one of the ones that hand wrote your baggage, you need to go and get your baggage off the carousel and re-enter it into the baggage process. It will not be on your next connection. We're like, great, right? And so the pressure's starting to rise. I got 25 minutes to collect my bags, go back to the desk, put it in, get it weighed, and then clear security. You ever read a Pearson? Clear security and get down to my plane. Some of you are like stressed out. Some of you who travel. It wasn't my finest moment. I'm not going to lie. My wife was looking at me like, what demon took over my husband right now? I was overtired, I was mad, I was mad at Air Canada, and I'm sitting there just about to have a spaz attack on the carousel. Like, I'm watching everybody's bag come out except for mine. And it was like this slow, like the Chinese water torture. Every time a bag came out that wasn't mine, just one more in the forehead, right? Until it's just me and Melanie standing there and no bags. And so we decide, well, let's make a run for it because our bags aren't here. So we ran to the plane. I am, I am steaming out of both ears. So mad. And I, I'm just like, I'm so mad and on edge. I don't know why I got all corked up. And my wife's like looking at me like, you need to calm down. And then from the grace of God, not one, not two, but three people in the line for St. John were like, oh, hey, Pastor Brent. <laughs> and so I had to be like, uh, blessings, my child. How are you? How are you on this wonderful day? Right? Y'all don't like that you have a real pastor who struggles sometimes, but how are you under pressure? Sometimes it's not the big thing. Sometimes it's the small things or just the compound effects of life that will just show you, you know what? You've got some things going on there and you've got a ways to go. My question is, how are you under pressure? And I know it varies. I know it varies in circumstances. It varies with what you're going through. It varies from person to person. I know we could look throughout Christian history and we could talk about some people who, I mean, they endured massive pressure. I mean, you work your way back from Jesus. You have the 12 apostles. I mean, these guys not only lived in a time where it was incredibly dangerous to be a Christian, 11 out of 12 of them died for what they believe in. I talk about not cracking under pressure, right? And then if you go throughout Christian history, I mean, we could talk about this guy named Polycarp. That name's available for any of you who are having children. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop of a city called Smyrna. And he was this amazing generational leader. He lived to be an old man. He was one of the, the fathers of the early church. And the story goes that in his city, this massive persecution for decades had arisen, and they actually came after him, and they called him on his Christianity, and they, they, they trapped him. They said, you must say Caesar is Lord, and they knew he wouldn't. 
And so the authorities arrested him. They brought him into the center of the city. And this guy was so well-loved, the story goes that the police chief was begging with him the whole way there, hey, just, just say Caesar is Lord. Just say Caesar is Lord. It's not a big deal. Just say it and they'll, let, they'll leave you alone. You can live your life. You're an old man. You don't need this. Just say it. We all love you. And Polycarp famously said, 80 and six years I have served my Lord, and he has never been anything but faithful to me. I will not betray him now. 86 years. And the story goes, he said, you threaten me with fire that is temporary. And he goes, but some of you don't know the fire that awaits you at the judgment. And he goes, go ahead, do what you will. Standing there ready to be burned at the stake. Like, talk about cool under pressure. This 90-year-old man in the latter days of his life doesn't crack coming through the most difficult of circumstances. And I know some of you are like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's an exception. And we're talking about early church fathers. Do you know that right now, all over the world, there are thousands of Christians who deal with persecution, like real persecution, not just you got made fun of because you believe in Jesus. This isn't just that. It's like the real deal. I pulled out some stats last week when I was researching this, and I found out that 245 million Christians worldwide live in places where it is dangerous to be a Christian. You have 245 million brothers and sisters who are putting their lives in danger to proclaim the name of Jesus like we just did at all of our locations. Last year alone, there was 4,305 people killed for believing in Jesus. Last year. This isn't, this isn't Christian history stuff. This is right now. There are 3,150 Christians who are currently in prison with no trial around the world. So right now there are people who follow Jesus who are under pressure and literally, you know, not literally, but figuratively speaking, they're in the fire. They are dealing with immense pressure. And the question I want to ask today, whether you are dealing with immense pressure, maybe you aren't under persecution, but this, the trials of life are raging around you right now. You might have family issues. You might have health issues. You might have an issue with a child that is breaking your heart. Sometimes those things can be worse. Sometimes you wish that you could take a little personal flack if you could just help some other person. And so maybe you're in that season, and I want to ask this question right now, what do we need to know about going through pressure? What do we need to know about going through pressure? We have been in a series where we're looking at the book of Revelation. I am enjoying this. This has been a lot of fun, and we're learning a lot about it. We're correcting some, maybe some misconceptions about the book of Revelation. We found out that the word Revelation means apocalypse, and apocalypse does not actually mean the end of the world. The apocalypse means what? Unveiling. What? Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, it means the unveiling. It's, the purpose of Revelation is to show us things that we had not seen before, to show us primarily things about Jesus that we hadn't seen. And in the light of him, he reveals things about not just the future. This isn't just a book about the future. We've learned this is a book about the, the future, the present, and the past, and that God is trying to give us this as a gift for a now purpose. And we're supposed to ask the question, what are you, Holy Spirit, saying to us, your church, right now? And last week, we jumped in to chapter 2, where we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And we looked at the first of the churches, the church of Ephesus, and how they'd lost their heart, and Jesus corrects them. It was kind of one of those tough love moments. And we know now that these seven letters to the seven churches are seven letters at a specific time to specific churches, but they represent seven letters. The seven letters represent the church at all times. And so we've been asking the question, God, what are you saying to us? And so this week, we just have four little verses, but in those verses, buckle up, we're going to go very deep and we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. So you ready? Can you keep up? Good. Halifax West. So we want to look at this, and it begins in a city where the letter is to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was known in Asia as the most beautiful city there was. This is where Smyrna was. Last week we talked about Ephesus. And Smyrna, this is modern-day Turkey, uh, this is actually the city of, uh, what is the city actually? I can't remember. It's Izmir. It's the city of Izmir in modern-day times. And this is actually a beautiful city. It's, it's got palm trees, and it's got beaches. It is actually a gorgeous city, and it's 
that it has mountainous foothills that kind of nestle in the beachside, like this, this kind of natural harbor. And so this is the most beautiful city in all of Asia at that time. Smyrna was uh, actually destroyed in 600 BC and rebuilt by Alexander the Great. And when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it as this kind of epicenter for religion. There were all kinds of religions, none more present and prevalent than imperial cult. Uh, people worshiped Caesar there, but there was also a huge Jewish faction. There was a huge Jewish presence in the city. And in the city of Smyrna, this is an artist rendering, you can see how it was nestled in behind these mountains. And then, in fact, there was on top of this hill that overlooks the town down into the harbor, that's where they put a big mall. And a mall in those days was a place of worship where all the temples and different various worship activities would take place. In fact, there was a road that went up to that. It was called the Street of Gold, which is, which is interesting. I don't know if it was actually made of gold, but that's what the street was called. And they called this, this mountain, the Crown of Smyrna. Can you see why they called it that? I'll take, a, I'll take an extra mic here. Sorry, guys, just hang with me. Hello, you got me? Hey, 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 check one, two. Can you hear me, everybody? Can you hear me now? We'll have to get that fixed. Can you turn me up a little bit? Thanks. So this was actually called the Crown of Smyrna. Can you see why they would call it that? It's because it sat on top of that hill, almost like a crown on top of a head. And so this is the backdrop of the city of Smyrna, and this was the people that Jesus was writing to. Let's read it together, and then I'll start to unpack it. And it's going to give us some hints into what we do with pressure. Can we read it together out loud, all of our locations? You ready? You've been doing so good. We know there's a triple blessing, so let's get it. Write this letter to the angel. This is the message from the one I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not. Because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Keep it going. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. All right, good job. Good reading. So let's unpack that. The first thing I want you to see is this, and notice, Jesus to the church in Smyrna gives no correction. There's no rebuke. All but two of these letters, he's going to say, I have seen this and I hold this against you. But the church in Smyrna are, are like highly favored. They actually have, there's nothing that Jesus offers them other than encouragement. This whole thing is actually an encouragement and he gives us some truths under pressure. We, we, as we unpack this, can find out some of the things that are going on to the church in Smyrna. Some of the things that they're facing. To put it in a, a nutshell, they are undergoing fierce pressure. Fierce persecution. We know that they're being persecuted not only by the Romans, but specifically history records that its genesis was from the Jews. The Jewish people in the city of Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus was calling it, they actually threw the Christian church under the bus at that time to deflect some of the heat that they were getting from the Roman Empire. And so they went and they went to the Roman authorities and said, these people are not worshiping Caesar. They refuse to worship Caesar. They are idolaters. You better do something about them. And so that's where a lot of the persecution came from. They were public enemy number one, not just to the Romans, but also to the Jews. And so that represented the vast majority of people in the city of Smyrna. So they're undergoing massive persecution. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. Didn't he say that? He said, I know your poverty. So they actually are impoverished. Now, a lot of Christians at that time were poor to begin with, but the reason they are having a hard time with money is because they are being persecuted. So they're losing jobs. 
People won't hire them. People won't trade with them. People won't serve them. People won't deal with them. And so they are having a virtual impossibility to make ends meet. To top that off, Jesus also says, I know what they're saying about you. I know the slander that's happening to you. I know the things. They're, they're actually not just persecuting you. They are bearing false witness about you. And it's interesting, in some of the historical accounts, there is, uh, there's people saying that, you know, these Christians are cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They took the idea of, of eating the body and, and, and drinking the blood, and they were saying, they're cannibals, they're cannibals. There are also people saying that these, uh, these Christians, these ones, that their, their love feasts are highly suspect. They were also declared to be homewreckers because they were breaking up good, Jew good Jewish and good Roman families as people were coming to find faith in Christ. So slander was huge against them. And then to top it off, he talks about how you're going to be, that you've been imprisoned. And now I need to help you understand how high stakes it was to be in prison in those days. In our day, a person can go to prison and there's a correctional component for it, right? If you go and you do your time, the hope is through this institution, you're going to kind of get some things, some wrongs made right and, and maybe come out a better person. But in this day and age, there was no correctional component. You either went to prison to await your trial and get exonerated or executed. It was only death row. So when he speaks about you going to prison, that is a dead end for a lot of people. You either get acquitted or executed. And this is the backdrop that Jesus is getting on. This is the backdrop that he's speaking to. And in this, I want to help somebody. We've got to move quick, but I want to help you. I want to look at what he says to the ones who are in the fierce pressure. Look what he says. He says, write this letter to the, one to the angel of the church of Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead, but is now alive. Did you notice that that's another reference to what he, the revelation was in chapter 1? Remember how I said every letter is going to pull and draw back from the revelation that John saw in chapter 1, and this is the same. I'm the one who was the first and the last, who was dead, but is now alive. And I want you to look at something particularly here. There is this word that I want you to see. Jesus says about their suffering, I know about your suffering. I know what's going on. I know what you're going through. I have seen it. I have been watching. I am aware of what you're going through. Now, why does this help? If you're taking notes, write this down. When, we come, when it comes to being under pressure, the first thing I want to just let us know is that we need to know that, that suffering, and this probably isn't even the best word. I just needed the P word, as you're going to see. You need to realize that, that it's a fact that we're going to go through difficulty. You need to know that this, you're not outside of the purview and the knowledge of Jesus. But in fact, the, the probability of you going through difficulty is extremely high as you follow Jesus. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, it's so important, though, that you see this. And why, why, why am I bringing this up? You know what the number one mistake we do when we go through suffering as believers? We think this shouldn't be happening. There must be some kind of mistake. Or I must have done something wrong. Or God isn't aware. And we think that we, we, we take suffering as some kind of surprise. Like, whoa, what is this? Why is this happening to me? We make the mistake of thinking that suffering is outside of the norm. That suffering is outside of the thing that we're supposed to experience as a believer. That's why I take so much comfort in Jesus saying, I know. I know. I am not unaware of what you're going through. I know what you're going through. This is not a surprise to me. This is why Peter said in 1 Peter, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal as if something strange were happening to you. You know, these things happen. These things happen. I love that Jesus said, I know. You know why that helps me with a bunch of things? That tells me a few things. It tells me that, first and foremost, pressure and difficulty and the fire is not evidence of disobedience. Did, did Jesus say that Samaritan did anything wrong? Huh? 
No, nothing. They did nothing wrong. There was nothing that Jesus said, here's the reason why you're going through this. Now, we all know sometimes we go through stuff because, not because God, you know, wasn't aware or because we're stupid. Right? You do dumb things and sometimes you got to reap the consequences. But here, in fact, Jesus says, I know what you're going through and I have nothing against you. So you've done everything right and you're still going through this. So this tells me, Jesus says, I know, so, so that helps me do the math. That just because I'm going through something difficult doesn't mean I did something wrong. It also helps me think that pressure is not evidence of God's avoidance or negligence. Isn't that the second way our minds go when we're going through something difficult? We think, well, God ought, hello, right? Don't you have that? Y'all talk to me, talk to me. Yeah, we have that kind of like, obviously, if you knew about this, you'd do something. Except Jesus says what? He said, he didn't say, whoa, whoa, Smyrna, I didn't know. Let's fix this. He said, I know. I know what you're going through. It also tells me that it's not evidence of God's malevolence. God isn't trying to just torture you or be bad to us. Jesus is coming to them. He's for them in this language. You hear it, correct? And it tells me that pressure is not a measure of God's impotence, that God can't help. We, we, Jesus, what does he say? He says, actually, I want, I want you to know, I am the first and the last. What, is that, what does that mean? It means that your whole situation is in the scope of my understanding and my vision. I saw it coming. I see you in it. And I see you coming through it. I can see every part of this. I know. I'm aware, he says. And it's not evidence that he's, not that he's unable. He says, I am the one who was dead and is now alive. Remember, I'm the guy who overcame suffering, who overcame death. So this is, this is huge. He's saying, I'm aware. I know that this is all happening, not only within Jesus' purview, but get this, within his power and permission. Now, that's hard to grapple with, but you've got to establish that before we go any further. This is happening because, or this is happening not because Jesus doesn't know about it. Jesus is aware. He says, I know. I know. This is happening within his power and his perspective. So it's critical under pressure, first and foremost, that we confront the twisted thinking that wants to tell you I'm somehow outside of God's will, God's goodness, God's power, God's pleasure, or God's perspective. Because you're in suffering does not take you outside of that grace bubble of God. So understand that. Know the probability. You need to realize some of you are going through something right now, and I just want to speak to you and just say... Don't be surprised. A lot of people sign up and they follow Jesus and they, they misinterpret that as, okay, now everything's going to be smooth. It's not how it works. Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal. Don't, as if something strange is happening. Let's keep going. Look, look, what else, look what else he says. Let's see what, else, what other things we got. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer, Jesus says. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. Now, theologians and scholars and commentators, they argue maybe some about what the 10 days means, but some of them think maybe that's literally 10 days and then they either died or were, were released. Some, but most commentators and scholars would say that the 10 is representative of a duration of time. That God sees the beginning from the end, that Jesus knows when this is going to be over, and it's a picture of the fact that he has this in his hand. He, he has a plan, that he knows what's going to happen. Not only does Jesus know what's happening around us, but here's the second thing you need to just resolve when you get thinking about going through difficulty. It's not just that he knows what's going on around us, he knows what's in us. He knows what you can take. Write this down. Here's my second point. Under pressure, trust the planning. Trust the planning. Do you know that God has you perfectly engineered? 
Like God is a creator. You know, sometimes it's helpful to think about that. I know we think about it in a macro sense. Like we see the trees and the skies and the mountains and the tides. And we see the beauty and the grandeur. But sometimes we need to remind ourselves that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knows your frame. That he knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows exactly who you are, what you're made of. The Bible says he, he has numbered the hairs on your head. So I'm talking fine attention to detail. That's how God has made you. Why does that matter? Because when someone has made something so specifically, they know what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. I'll, I'll, use, I'll use this analogy. This past summer, I got to drive a Ferrari. Living that pastor swag. Yeah, I, I know a guy who, a friend of mine has a Ferrari, and so he drove it down. We were, we were going to connect... And so we went for lunch, and then we, uh, we went to lunch at a, a fancy place where you take your Ferrari, the Irving on the Mackay Highway, big stop, <laughs> where all good Ferrari stories start and end. And we got in, he's like, now you're going to drive it. I'm like, nah, I, nah, I, I shouldn't do that. I don't even care about cars. Like, some of you car guys are like, that's not even right. You got to drive a Ferrari, and you didn't even appreciate it. No, I did. I, I, I got in the Ferrari, and he's like, you're going to drive it. And so he gets telling me about it, and he's geeking out. He's like, this is the finest Italian, Italian, Spanish? No, it's Italian. Finest. I'm just messing with you. I'm just, I'm just hurting the car guys a little bit. He's like, this is the finest Italian engineering. He said, like, this thing is made for performance. And so he's like, now, we're going to pull out onto the Mackay. Again, how often are you see Ferraris pulling out on the Mackay from the Irving Big Stop? But here we are, and he's like, okay, now when you shift gears, he's like, you're going to pull out, just, just punch it. Just punch it and just see what she can do. It's amazing. And I'm like, all right, I'll take your word for it. And I go, when do, you, when do I shift gears? And he said, you know, you want to go, and I'm like, maybe like 4,000, 5,000 RPM. He's like, no, 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 why don't you get up to eight or nine? Then, then hit it. I'm like, really? And he's like, oh, yeah. It's not, even, it's not even working until it's at 8,000. Like, just, just make sure. And so, sure enough, like, I pull out and just, he's like, now, now come on to her. And I, I put my foot down and come on, right? Like one of those. And, and, and he's like, no, 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 no don't, don't, sh don't shift yet, don't shift yet. And I'm getting up to 8,000, 9,000 RPM and then shifting into second gear. I'm going 100 miles an hour. Hypothetically, officer, hypothetically. And he's telling me, like, this engine is just screaming behind our heads. And it's, like, exhilarating. And we are just humming down the highway, hypothetically. And, <laughs> and he's like, this thing was made for this. It was made for this. It was, the, the engineering was made for the engine to be able to go in, under that much heat. The suspension was made to be able to grip the road going that fast. It was engineered for this. And I tell you this story because when somebody creates something with specificity and with, it, with ingenuity and intentionality, that person knows what it's capable of. And the Bible says, as your days are, so shall your strength be, which means God knows what you need each day. It also means, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, the Bible says, No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to mankind. And then it says this, And God will not let you be tempted or tested or pressured beyond that which you can bear. That means that God knows what you can go through and what you can't. Now, I know some of you are like, No, I don't feel like I can go through this. But this is, I've found this so helpful in my life. Just to, just to, to know that if I'm, I've given my life to Jesus, and if I'm going through this, then he has measured me, and he knew the weight that is on my shoulders or that would be on my shoulders and that I would be able to bear it by his grace. I remember like, that, that, that lesson occurred to me when I, when I took over the church. I was 29 years old. I had people, literally, I had, I had people that I, I cared about and had a voice with me tell me. I actually had people tell me, I don't think you should do this. I don't think you're the guy for this job. And it wasn't until I had that realization and revelation from God that says, if God knew I was going to be in this, then he's going to give me the stuff to get through it. And that he's built me and wired me for this. Even if I feel like I'm over my head, he's going to give me grace for those areas I'm weak. And so for some of you, like if you're still breathing and you're still walking and you're still like barely getting by and that, that RPM is just screaming, just remind yourself, he made you. 
He knows what you can take. He knows what you can go through. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to mankind. Understand the planning. You are not put together haphazardly. And I do believe that things just happen. I would use the word, but I'm not going to. Stuff happens. I don't think every hard thing we go through is, is the hand of God. But I do know that if I've given God the keys to my life to open certain doors and close certain doors, if things come into my life, nothing enters your life if you belong to Jesus that he did not give permission to. And so he will give you grace for that season. Understand and trust the planning. Let's keep going. A couple more and then we'll be done. Write this letter, he says, and then I want you to see this. I know about your suffering and your poverty. Verse 9. I know, Jesus says. There it is again. I know. I know. I know. I know about your suffering and your poverty. Now watch this and note the exclamation point. But you are, say at every location, you are? You're rich. You're rich. Imagine Jesus, the one who owns the universe, saying to you, you must be rich or something. Like, you're rich. Jesus saying to these people in Smyrna, you are rich, that you have. I know it looks like you have nothing, but if you could see, if you had eyes in the spirit, if you could see your bank account in heaven, you would know you're rich. You are rich, Jesus says, and that is huge. Uh, here's my next point. If you're, if you're writing notes, take this down. When it comes to pressure, we need to be diligent to receive the product. Realize that God is not a taker. And if something is removed from your life or pressure is coming down upon your life or you're not getting the thing that you thought you want or you really do want and you know you want, you need to trust that God is working this out for your good so that in the end, your testimony will be, God, you have been, you are, and you always will be so good to me. I lack nothing. My cup overflows. We also know that trials and tribulation and difficulty, it's not a waste when you follow Jesus. He actually takes those things and he brings beauty and power and strength out of these. It's interesting, the, the city of Smyrna, the word Smyrna actually is rooted in the word myrrh. Remember, remember myrrh? Myrrh. Anybody got some myrrh? Myrrh was the thing that they presented Jesus when he was a baby. The, the, the magi came in and brought myrrh. Myrrh was a precious spice. It was a precious perfume uh, in the days of Jesus and in the days of Smyrna. And this was an area where myrrh was created. It comes from a tree that they actually had to cut or wound. And when the, the tree was wounded, it would leak a sap, a gum. And the gum, when it was put in fire or when it was hardened in the air, it would actually calcify. And then when they would crush that down or boil it, it would create that perfume or even medicine. Notice that process, though. The tree was wounded. It bled. And the whole thing was, was exposed to pressure and heat, but it created something beautiful and valuable. And Jesus is saying to them, I know, I know if you just look at it with the naked eye, you think you're losing everything, but I assure you, you are gaining everything. What you are gaining far outweighs what you have not. Don't get duped into thinking that you are poor. I'm telling you, you're rich. This is creating something in you. This is doing something. This is what James was getting at when he said in James, he says, consider it pure joy. Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because it's creating something real in you and for you and through you. That's what it's doing. This is what Peter was getting at when he said, you know, you're going to suffer in various kinds of grief. But he goes, it's going to be more precious than gold, what God does through it. And Jesus is imploring them, you're rich. You're rich. I know you don't think of that when you're in difficulty. But how many of you look back over your life and you realize the areas that you are strongest in? Like the strength of your character, were they not forged in fire? Forged in challenge? Forged in difficulty? The things you value the most, did they not cost you the most? There is riches associated with pressure, with loss, with pain. Jesus is saying, you are storing up for yourself real treasure, real value. 
This is creating eternal wealth, character, capacity, authority, intimacy, durability, humility, wisdom, revelation, inheritance. That's what this is doing. He's saying you're rich. Realize something that if you're going through difficulty or you've lost someone or you've lost something or you're in a season of waiting or trial or whatever it is, realize that God is depositing that which cannot rust, fade, perish, or spoil. These Smyrnans were bankrolling in heaven. And Jesus is like, you are rich. Some of you are rich in ways that others of us aren't because of what you've gone through, not, not because you were spared it. Receive the product. A couple more. I'm almost done. Are you with me still? So he tells them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You've got about 10 days. And then he says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Then he says, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Now, why does he throw that there? What is the second death? What's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. He's talking about eternal death. Jesus talked about this before. One time his disciples were worried about their lives. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can only destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy the body and the soul. And Jesus is saying there are bigger problems than suffering and death. That's, that's the great lie of suicide. Did you know that? Like that lie of suicide that's, that's corrupting so many people's minds, it's, it's telling you that death is an escape. That death is some kind of savior. It is no savior because just because your mortal body dies, you are an eternal soul. And there is life after this. The question is the quality of your life after this. And Jesus says, whoever is victorious, whoever stays the path, whoever holds the faith will not be harmed in the second death. I love this because what he's doing is extending and expanding their perspective. You ever notice when you're in difficulty how hard it is to see beyond right here? Isn't it? Like, there's just... Those times where you've, you've had it up to here, right? Like everything's happening. You can't see behind the waves. It's like you're, you're going underwater almost. Did anybody ever feel like just the water is rising in my life and I just, I, I'm trying to keep my mouth above it. And then like my, I'm trying to keep my eyes above water. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to show that there is a perspective that must be greater than the temporal things that you're going through. And that the moment that your perspective is so limited that it can't carry the, the, the trials of the day, you are sunk. You're sunk. He's saying extend your perspective. Don't confuse what is seasonal for what is eternal. Don't get it twisted. Don't treat the temporary as though it's ultimate. He's saying take your perspective higher. Don't treat the temporary as though it's eternal. When the trials we face are greater than our vision for the future, life becomes more than we can bear. Let me say that again. When the trials we face are greater than our vision for the future, life becomes more than we can bear. That's when despair and dread and fear start to rule our lives. Is because that seems to be the greatest thing in front of us. And Jesus says, no, look forward. Look further. Extend your capacity. Now, I'm not an engineer, but how do you relieve pressure? Well, one thing, if you have a tank full of air or full of water, one way is to get rid of the water. But if you can't get rid of the water, what's your other option? It's to get a bigger tank, right? That's not rocket science. It's math, I know. <laughs> it's physics, right? Yeah, you, you get a bigger tank. And what Jesus is saying is, you have got to set your mind big enough to be able to carry the struggles and the pressures of the day. This is what it means in the Bible. It says, set your minds on things above, where you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And it far outweighs, it far surpasses. You know, I was thinking about it like this. I don't know if I can do, it with, do this with a handheld but a lot of us live our lives, and here's our capacity. 
see if I can do this without electrocuting myself. Here's our capacity. It's just a nine volt. Just, just be a little shock. And, you know, we live our lives and, and we're going through. And we're, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And then you know what? Like you get a flat tire. A little bit of, little bit of stress. Just a little bit of stress. And then, you know, you go through another week and you, you, you got a cold. And then the Chiefs lose. <laughs> Whatever it is. And then some serious things happen. Something you found out they weren't being honest. You lost your job. And before long, if your capacity to carry the struggles of the day isn't big, anybody found like there's more pressure and there's more difficulty in life than your ability to carry? And I think a lot of the time, you know, you know what my life is a lot of the time is that I'm just, I'm filled to the brim and then I get the tiniest bump and oh, I'm just spilling on people. Anybody? Is that just me? My, no, it's like... That's what that is when you go home and you rip your spouse's head off and you didn't even talk to them all day. That's what that is. You had it up to here. And what Jesus is saying is the framework of your mind has got to be bigger. You need a bigger jar. You need one that's got the capacity to carry whatever it is you'll face in this life. And here's what I've come to find out. I've, I have gone through things and I have friends and family that have gone through horrific things and I need a hope that is bigger than this life. Have you been around somebody who lost a child? I need a hope that's bigger than this life. People struggling with infertility, I need a hope that's bigger than this life. People who are dealing with chronic illness, I need a hope that is bigger than this life. If your hope is fixed on this life alone, you're going to drown. So Jesus says, extend your perspective. Think through. He says, you have already answered the biggest problem. You are going to be spared the second death. You know me and you are going to reap life and life everlasting. So no matter what it is that you are going through, it is not greater than what is coming for you. You have eternity. Last thought, and I'm going to pray for those of you who are going through this right now. Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, and as we find out, uh, many have been martyred and have gone through death. He says, even... When facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Here's my last thought. I the promise. He says, you will receive the crown of life. Bands, you can come back. I'm going to pray in just a minute. But I want to just paint this picture for you. You know, you saw the picture of the town of Smyrna with that beautiful crown that sits upon the hill. And Jesus is calling to that imagery saying, I have a crown for you that is living and lasting. He's speaking, the, uh, the town of Smyrna was a place where a lot of the Olympic games, like, like the games that we think of, and gladiators, th those things actually happened there. And they would often get a victor's crown. He's saying, I have a victor's crown that will never, ever perish, or spoil, or fade. I, I have a whole other new life for you. You know, think about these people who live in a city that was destroyed and then rebuilt. He said, to the one who is faithful, even to death, I promise you, I will give you the crown of life. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the first and the last. I am the one who is dead and is now alive. I have all authority. He said, I know what you're going through. I'm going to bring you through it. And I'm with you in it. I love that. I love, I love how intimate this letter is. How, how does Jesus know what's going on? Because he's with them. He's with them in it. The only way you can have knowledge is to be, is have proximity. He's there with them. He's there in it. He's the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, you know, know this. You are not abandoned. You are not abandoned. I'm there with you. The story of Polycarp, it's kind of a, 
a difficult story on the one hand, but it's beautiful on the other. Because you see a man, this, this guy Polycarp was in fact the bishop of Smyrna, and he was established, he was ordained by John the Apostle, the guy who wrote this letter from Jesus. And so at some ripe age of 90-something, this guy gets betrayed by the Jews and the Romans and taken down into the town square. It's said that this happened on the Sabbath and the, this synagogue of Satan, the ones that aren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, were the ones that piled the wood and put the stake up where he would be executed, burned alive. And they went to tie him up to the post and he actually said, I don't, I, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not afraid of this. And then the historical account goes that when they lit the fire, he didn't burn, which is, which is just kind of this crazy imagery. He didn't burn, but he actually, it says that they're almost like this, this egg formed around him, and he was just standing in it. Like just this picture. To me, it's just this picture of grace, and what killed him was actually a Roman spear. They actually had to, had to stab his heart. I had this picture of like that grace in the fire. Like this, this man who knew Jesus from, from, for 86 years, he said, he's never, he's never steered me wrong. He's never abandoned me. He's with me now, and I will not, I will not abandon him. And there was this special grace in this special circumstance. And I've come to believe and come to experience even in my own life that there is special grace in the fire. And sometimes God makes you go through these things and he has his reasons and there's purposes associated with it. But I know this, he will never leave you or forsake you and he will never abandon you. And there is grace in any fire. And what I wanted to do today as we end off at all of our locations, I'm gonna invite you to stand. And I just wanna pray grace over people who are in that season right now. You're in the heat. You're in the pressure. Some of you have family issues going on that just will not resolve. It's not going away. And I'm all for miracles. You know I am. We pray for it all the time. We take the authority of Christ. He tells us to pray for miracles and, and see change. And we've seen that. Amen. We are a church that prays for miracles. But sometimes Jesus answers, my grace is sufficient. Paul himself prayed three times that something would change. And on the third time, Jesus just said, I got you. No, but I got you. My grace is sufficient. And what I wanted to do, so at all of our locations in Halifax, at West, here at the Valley, I wanted to just take a moment at the end of this service, and I just wanted to pray together for that the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus would be made known to you in this season, even if your circumstance doesn't change. Let's hang on for the miracle and believe God is a God of miracles. But the greater miracle is not that God would change your circumstance, but he would actually capture your heart and change your character in such a way that you could even glorify him in the fire. And so I want to pray for those of you who are in the fire right now. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable for a minute. If you're in a season of pressure and difficulty, all of our locations, I just want you to put your hand up. Just to, where are you? All over the room here, West Valley. Okay, we're going to agree together in prayer. Keep your hand up for a second. Just be vulnerable. If you see someone with their hand up, I want you to reach, and I just want you to put your hand on their shoulder. We're going to be that grace bubble around each other today. Come on. Just put, get around the rooms. Go ahead, Wes. Go ahead, Halifax. I know it's weird. It's clunky. Whatever. Let's just pray for grace in this season. Let's agree together. Got, got hands. Nobody's alone. Nobody's alone. Anybody else? West Halifax, just move around the room right now, and let's pray together. And let's ask that the same God who gave this good news to the church in Smyrna would refresh your heart, expand your perspective today. And let's ask, so is anybody alone? Nobody, there's, there's still a hand over here. Nobody's alone. And let's just gather around one another and let's just agree together. Let's just speak grace, grace over these situations. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead at all of our locations. And you can pray right along with me. Some of you pray out loud. Some of you pray in tongues. Some of you just... Agree with me and give a grunt if that's all you got, but whatever. Just Let's just pray. And so, Father, we come to you today.
And we just say, Lord, whether a circumstance changes or not, we just want to declare, Father, we want the type of faith because you, you deserve the type of faith that says, I know my God can deliver me from the flames, but even if he doesn't, yeah. And so, Father, I pray for every person right now that's in the, in the inferno. They're in the difficulty. Lord, I pray right now, first and foremost, for an even if he doesn't faith that trusts you so supremely, that, he, that trusts you in such a way that says, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's God, and I stand on his word that he's going to be faithful to his promises. And not a single thing that he has spoken in his word and over my life, not a single word will fall by the wayside, but it will all accomplish its purpose. And so, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, I pray for a, an establishment of a new level of faith even in the fire. Lord, we ask that, the, that the, if there are fires that can be changed right now, we pray for resolutions, Lord. We pray for miracles. We pray for healing in the name of Jesus. But God, beyond that, I pray right now, Father, first and foremost, I pray that there be an intimate awareness of your proximity in this. Lord, for the one who feels abandoned by you, I, I pray right now they would feel just like that picture of Polycarp even, just surrounded, encased by grace. Father, we just speak grace over our brothers and sisters right now. Even in this season, we rebuke the lie that you have been abandoned. We rebuke the lie that says you've done something wrong. We rebuke the lie that says God is not for you or God can't be trusted. And God, we just, we just speak grace over their minds right now. Grace over their hearts right now. Grace over their bodies right now. Lord, expand perspective. Father, we just declare that the hope that is in front of us is greater than the trial that we're in. And we speak that in Jesus' name over every situation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. The hope that we have in Jesus is greater than any trial we are going through right now. And we just declare that in Jesus' name. So, Father, would you expand perspective? You are the lifter of our heads, Lord. I pray that you would fill people who are full of despair with new optimism in Jesus' name. We rebuke the spirit of dread in the name of Jesus, and we release faith and hope and love in Jesus' name. We, re we rebuke despair in the name of Jesus. We come against the lie of suicide in the name of Jesus. We rebuke it. We, we call it out for what it is. Death is not an answer, and death is no Savior. Jesus, you are the Savior, and it's in you we trust. So, Father, we come around our brothers and sisters right now in this season, and we say, sufficient grace, fill your mind. Sufficient grace, fill your body. Sufficient grace, fill your perspective. Sufficient grace, fill your expectations right now, and give you peace that defies logic in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, our great comforter, who even in the fire gives us grace and peace. So Lord, we declare grace and peace over every circumstance, every situation, in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus, who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was dead and behold is alive forevermore and holds the keys to death and hell. Thank you that those keys control the doors of my life and that Jesus, you open the ones that no man can shut and you shut the ones that no man can open. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our doorkeeper and we celebrate it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, amen.